0: I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast.
1: How do you grieve a person that's not dead, and how do you grieve a person that's infamous? Because the whole world is telling you how God-awful your father is, and he did God-awful things, but he wasn't most of the time God-awful to you. So how, how do you even have the right to grieve this person?
0: Earlier this week, I spoke with Carrie Rawson, the daughter of Dennis Rader, otherwise known as the infamous BTK, Bind, Torture, Kill, Serial Killer. Carrie shared details about life growing up with Dennis as her father and the shocking discovery of his secret life when she was approached by the FBI back in 2005. The revelation gave Carrie a great deal of trauma, yet thanks to therapy, her family, and her faith she's been able to overcome it all and learn to become herself again. If you haven't done so already, be sure to listen to my interview with Carrie Rawson for more about her life. And now that it's Thursday, you know what that means. Another recap with Gianna. Hi, Gianna.
1: Hi, Emily. So really great interview you had this week.
0: Tell me a little bit about what stuck out to you. Thank you so much. What was fascinating about Carrie's descriptions of her childhood is that she called it idyllic. And yet the more layers that she uncovered, the more stories that she told, I realized it actually wasn't idyllic at all. And as she shared her trauma and her processing of realizing that her father was indeed BTK, it proved an unparalleled perspective into life with a serial killer.
1: I'm sure she went back and was like, well, on this day, he said he was doing this, but now the evidence looks like he was actually doing that. So it must have been wild for her to paint that roadmap in her own head.
0: You're right. That's absolutely right. And I was struck by the clarity of her memory, the details of her memory, as she walked us back in time and told us what it was like. As a 26 year old and older to, yes, go back in time and realize this was the weekend my father was doing this. This was the night he said this. This was the bag he was carrying when I realized now all these years later what was in that bag.
1: And you both talked about the importance of faith carrying you out of hard times. So what did that mean
0: for you to have that discussion with her? I'm always grateful for any opportunity to talk about faith. And for her, she shared that, yes, not only did it bring her out of the depths of depression and and incredibly dark times while he was not yet discovered as BTK, but also through her processing her trauma and how she uses it to inspire and help others now that are suffering from trauma and abuse.
1: So what part of the interview do you think will stick out most to the listener?
0: Gosh, I think just in the aggregate, learning about what it was like to live under the same roof as a serial killer and have that person be your dad and have that dad be so instrumental. And again, close. They had an incredible bond. And then the discovery, the realization going back in time, realizing where he was all of those nights, realizing he was hiding the trophies from his victims under her floorboards. The details will blow everyone away. The unparalleled perspective will be gripping and compelling. It's a must-listen episode. I can't wait for everyone to listen.
1: Thank you, Emily. We'll have more of the Fox True Crime Podcast bonus episode after this.
0: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline.
1: The disappearance of Natalie Holloway is a case that has captivated the nation for 18 years. Natalie, a straight-A student, was on track to attend the University of Alabama with a full-ride scholarship. After graduating from Mountain Brook High School, she embarked on a graduation trip to Aruba with her fellow seniors. However, as the trip ended and her fellow classmates appeared at the airport, Natalie would never make her flight home. Natalie disappeared May 30, 2005, sparking an international search for answers. According to Natalie's peer, she was last seen leaving a club with three local residents, one of whom being 17-year-old Juron Vandersloot. Vandersloot would go on to become the prime suspect in Natalie's disappearance. When questioned by police, Vandersloot claimed he had dropped Natalie off at the hotel. As the investigation proceeded, Vandersloot was freed from his detainment due to a lack of evidence. Five years after Natalie's disappearance, 21 year old student Stephanie Flores was murdered in Lima, Peru, and Van der would once again be connected to the crime. After murdering Stephanie, Van der Schloot fled to Chile, where he later confessed to killing Flores. Now, Van der Schloot is in the process of being extradited to the United States, where he'll face criminal charges of wire fraud and extortion. The case has so many twists and turns. So joining me today with information surrounding the latest developments is WBRC Fox 6 anchor and investigative reporter Jonathan Hardison. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today. Give me a little bit of background about your history with the Natalie Holloway case.
2: Sure. So I uh, moved to Birmingham in 2007, so about two years after she disappeared. And actually, one of my first stories, and we were a, a, uh, an O&O back then. We were owned by you guys in 07. And so one of my the first time I was ever on Fox News Channel actually was a couple of months into my tenure here, actually about a month and a half. It was Thanksgiving of 2007 and one of the many times that there was a false hope, false alarm, that they perhaps had found Natalie's remains. And so, you know, th- you know, holiday staffing being what it is, um, there was I was a low man on the totem pole, so I was working that Thanksgiving or Black Friday, one of the two, and uh, word came in that some remains had been found in Aruba, and, and there was a possibility or a hope that it might be Natalie, and so I was dispatched to go and get some free action from the, uh, the community in Mountain Brook, uh, from some of her family, friends, and things like that. So this case, I had you know, heard about it, had followed some of it from afar um, and, and other markets where I'd been working before I came here. But uh, this is a case that's very personal to everybody in, in this in the Birmingham area, especially in Mountain Brook. And so uh, that was a quick introduction to, um, to the case, to some of the, the major players in there, obviously, obviously the Holloway family, prosecutors, Uh, Searchers, remember there's several private search firms that at different points jumped in to try and find her and obviously the central figure in the case all along, Joran Vandersloot. And um, this was, you know, a couple of years before this alleged extortion attempt. Um, And so there was probably more, a couple of more uh, false hopes, false alarms over the next couple of years before the alleged incident sort of at the center of this part of the case now happened uh, in 2010.
1: So let's backtrack to 2005 and the circumstances around Natalie's disappearance and you're on Vander Yes.
2: Yeah, so Natalie went on a, um, she graduated from Mount Brook High School in 2005. She and some of her friends were going to go to Aruba, or did go to Aruba, I should say, for uh, a senior trip, a uh, graduation sort of trip, and uh, went down there, uh, went out uh, one night, and, uh, and Natalie didn't come back to the her hotel, back with her friends. Uh, Van der Schlute, one of, if not the last people that she was allegedly seen with. And so it was very early on a focal point for investigators and certainly for her family who were simply trying to find her and wanted to see if at first, if he could help them figure out where she had gone uh, after she left the the nightclub. And it was a situation where very early on, there seemed like there was uh, some information missing and some missing links in, the, in this flow of timeline. Um, and her family, obviously, you can imagine uh you send your daughter off on a on a graduation trip and expect her to come home. And so the our involvement in the case really started with a call to our newsroom uh from one of her close family friends to say, can you help us get the word out that Natalie is missing and and the family really doesn't even know how to go about searching for um a missing teen in another country? If you I mean you can just imagine the uh the angst and the anxiety. Uh, and also, if you take yourself back to that, uh, that age technologically, you know, there was no social media. There was very few ways to try and elevate a story or elevate attention to a case or to kind of uh, marshal volunteer resources or, or even uh, federal resources and attention. And so they very early on figured out that um, enlisting the help of the media, both local and eventually national, was going to be key to trying to do everything they could to find her.
1: And you mentioned uh, a lot of false hope and false leads and the search efforts. How do you search for a person overseas without this technology? So how did they go about looking for her?
2: Well, her her parents uh, flew down there almost immediately, um, and they brought uh, some family members eventually came with them, some friends who came with them. And, uh, and Mountbrook is an affluent suburb of Birmingham, uh, perhaps the most affluent. Um, and so there, there are some private resources to be able to sort of gather there and and. They did uh, a lot of work uh, themselves. They funded some search efforts. Um, They were down there for weeks. We were down there for weeks. Uh, We had literally grabbed one of our reporters and said, who's got a passport that's up to date? Get to the airport, and we'll send you down there for a couple of days. And it ended up being about a month, I believe, or a month and a half, uh, that we stayed down there to cover the search every day, and that her family and friends were down there for even longer. Uh, A couple of private search firms, some donated their time, some were hired for a while. Obviously, the authorities in Aruba uh, did significant searching. There were several interviews done with vandersloot and others who were with her or around her that night. Uh, they combed the beaches. I mean, it was an all-out um, effort, exhaustive effort. Uh, I think you could—it's it's fair to say—and um, sadly, after weeks and weeks, um, nothing.
1: And they never found her to this day. But vandersloot was also released. So. How did that come to be? If he was the only person that they had seemed to find that might know something,
2: uh, basically a lack of evidence. There just was not enough evidence that prosecutors believed they could uh, effectively prosecute a case and get a conviction, uh, or that there was probable cause. And, and again, you know, the Aruban uh, justice system is a little bit different than the American one in terms of thresholds for evidence and uh, and and what the the uh, the level is a uh, level of ed- evidence that you have to have. Uh, what is prosecutable? What's not? But uh, it came down to basically he was the center of suspicion, had acted suspiciously um, and was probably the last person to be seen with Natalie alive. But there wasn't uh, enough evidence, hard evidence that tied him to anything malicious, anything nefarious or criminal. Uh, and eventually that is why they had to release him, uh, despite you know heavy suspicions from most people involved in the case, at least on the prosecuting, investigative and certainly her family's side. Uh, I think from almost the beginning have all suspected him, uh, but just didn't have enough to make that that charge stick, if you will. Uh, And then we see what happened when he went to Peru a few years later.
1: That's where I was going to go next. So now we're going to bring you from 2005 to 2010, five years to the day of Natalie's disappearance. Something happens in Peru. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah, so uh, in Peru 2010, uh, and I'm, I'll be honest here, I'm not as familiar with uh, this case as I am with, with Natalie Holloway. But basically, uh, he eventually ended up uh, pleading guilty to killing a 21-year-old Peruvian woman that he met at a casino. Uh, and she died, uh, ironically, five years to the day uh, that Natalie disappeared. So Natalie disappeared in 2005, and Stephanie Flores uh, died in 2010. And his lawyer actually went to court and argued that he killed her, killed Stephanie Flores in Peru, as a result of what they call extreme psychological trauma. He suffered from the fallout from the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. So just a, a really tragic arc to those two young women's lives and the connection that they have uh, and even the the use of the Natalie Holloway case for a defense, I guess you could say, for Van Der Sloot, uh and his attorney. Uh, but basically, he said he confessed to it. Eventually, and said that he killed her in a fit of rage after she discovered uh, on his laptop some connection to the disappearance of Holloway. That's what he said in his confession. So um, the prosecutors actually say it was more he was trying to rob her after learning she had won money at the casino where they met uh, and said it was cruel and that he strangled her in a hotel room there. And so uh, that is why he is in a Peruvian prison now uh, and will be um, until uh, perhaps 2040 uh, serving um a uh, multiple decades sentence for that uh, murder to which he has confessed.
1: And that brings us to today, his name and Natalie Holloway's name back in the headlines again, uh, because a month after Stephanie Flores, he was indicted in the U.S. on wire fraud and extortion charges relating to her family. What did he do there?
2: Yeah, so prosecutors allege, and this is a really, um, I think, twisted, cruel. We, talk, we actually talked to the prosecutors who filed these charges back in 2010 this week, uh, who, some of whom are still uh, working in the justice system, a couple who are in private practice now. But just, uh, just several of them remarked about how just cruel and twisted is the words that they used um, these allegations are because the allegation is that Van der Shloot reached out to Natalie Holloway's mother, Beth, and her attorney, long-time attorney, who represented her during all the search process, is still uh, with her today and basically said, I know where Natalie's remains are, and I'll tell you how she died and where, she, and lead you to where she is if you'll uh, send me a quarter of a million dollars. And so the arrangement was that, that Beth Holloway, Natalie's mom, was going to give him, I think, $25,000 up front. He would... Uh, lead them to the remains, get provided in the information, and then upon recovery of her body, they would provide the rest of the money. Um, but the prosecutor say he never intended to give her any sort of that kind of information. And once she wired the money, he just wanted to, t- he intended to take off with it. Uh, and that's why they filed those charges. So basically saying he was trying to prey upon her grief and the need for the family's need for closure to try and make more money um, off the fact that he was believed, basically trying to monetize the fact that he was the prime suspect and the person everybody believes uh, knows where she is.
1: And that was a 13-year gap between being indicted and where we are at today. So what are the next steps in Alabama?
2: So we are waiting for his um, arrival. And it's funny, you know, we we keep uh, having to stop ourselves from saying being extradited back to Birmingham because he, to my knowledge, has never been to Birmingham Um, So we have to keep saying come to Alabama, which I think will be the first time he has been uh, in in the state of Alabama. I'm not sure about even in the United States, Um, but it is it sort of shocked all of us in the sense that this, as you said, it's been 13 years since these charges were filed. It's been 18 years since Natalie disappeared. She would be 36 years old now had she lived. So it has been a long, hard road for justice for this family, uh, for this community. I mean, I'll tell you, so many folks who live in Mountain Brook who had yellow ribbons on their trees back in 2005 when the search process was going on, they have have not forgotten this case at all. It's still very fresh. Uh, We talked to Senator Katie Britt this week, the freshman senator from Alabama, whose sister, one of her younger sisters, is actually uh, scheduled to go to the University of Alabama with Natalie. Um, so there's a personal connection to her in this case. Everybody in this state really remembers this. And so now this new chapter will begin when Van der is extradited. Uh, there's a lot of questions about when that will be. It could honestly be a matter of days or a week. It could be a month or more, depending upon how vigorously his attorney in Peru fights this extradition process. But we talked to a federal, former federal judge this week uh, who says he is certain that now that Peru has basically promised to do this, Uh, that it's going to happen. is simply a matter of when he is brought uh, to the United States. The Marshal Service will bring him to Birmingham, where he will uh, be arraigned in federal court downtown and then spend the next several months awaiting trial on those charges. We expect those to happen in the federal courthouse here in downtown Birmingham. Uh, And If he's convicted, of course, he could face a multi-year sentence here that he would only begin to serve after returning to Peru Uh, to finish his sentence there, which is, again, as I said, I think is up in 2040 as it's currently scheduled. So we were talking to a former U.S. attorney who basically said, look, if he if he uh, is convicted on these charges and I think federal prosecutors would tell you they feel they have a very strong case, uh, this would amount to a life sentence for him because he would serve in in Peru until 2040 and then come here to serve likely what would be 10, 15, 20 years of time here.
1: We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Now, Natalie was declared legally dead back in 2012. But how do these developments um, impact the community even still, or her family especially, after all of these years?
2: Yeah, I was talking to a a couple of close family friends. Uh, We talked to Natalie's father. Uh, At least he, he gave us a statement last week as well. And I think there is simply the family sees this as some form of closure. It's not the closure that they really want in terms of knowing exactly what happened to Natalie that night. Knowing where she is, they don't have a body to bury or to mourn, uh, and that is a an open wound that may never heal. So I think I think there's only partial closure here, but there is definitely some sense of relief, perhaps, and satisfaction that there is at least some consequence, and that Jordan suit is going to face uh, a jury in the United States justice system for something related to this case. Now. It's not uh, the main charges that so many people expected when this whole thing began. Uh, it is not the charges for killing or allegedly killing Natalie Holloway, but it is um, it is some form of closure. It is some form of justice and some form of penalty. And I think that uh, the family certainly feels like there is, uh, there is some closure in that. And at this point, this may be the best they can hope for in terms of closure. Uh, and certainly there is still, I think, A hope on the part of those connected to the Holloway family that somehow, some way out of all of this, and they may be able to to answer more questions that have gone unanswered now for almost 20 years. uh, And that is where their daughter is. And um, I I don't know if they'll get that. Uh, Sloot has obviously, even through these allegations, proven that if he feels any remorse, he hasn't shown it. And if he feels any sense um, of responsibility, he hasn't shown that either. But there is a hope that perhaps through this process, um, he will finally answer some of the questions that they've been trying to get answered for 20 years.
1: Yeah, I hope after all of these years they do get some sort of closure, if not justice. I'm from Long Island, New York, so we have uh, like the Gilgo Beach murders, and it just shows how the community really still comes together and tries to ask the questions even so many years after the events occurred. And hopefully there is some uh, closure for the community down there in Alabama.
2: Yeah, that's the hope. And, you know, again, as I said, this is um, it's still an open wound. If you live in this area, if you've been here for any length of time, if you know that Holloway family or, you know, the folks in Mountain Brook, we talked to the, the mayor of Mountain Brook now was not obviously the mayor back then, but he's he told us he's like this is if anybody that's our age or that was around back in 2005. And there's many of those folks still live in this community. Um, you cannot forget that you cannot shake that case. We talked to former reporters of ours who are now in other other fields. Uh, but that this is the story that stands out that you remember, because it was such a, a desperate time and anguish uh, that, that the whole community felt. And so if there's some sense that uh, it, it's going to be really remarkable and dramatic to see Euron Van eventually walk out of a plane uh, and onto the tarmac in Birmingham at some point in the next few weeks or months and breathe the first couple of gulps of Alabama air and and face potentially at least some form of justice, and that will be a very powerful Whole powerful thing for not just the Holloway family, but for a lot of folks here who know and remember that case so well and for whom it is still also a bit of an open wound.
1: Even all across the country, I remember seeing Natalie's picture on newspapers and the the news. I was just a kid, but that picture that they were showing really just uh, sticks with you. Jonathan Hardison, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully we'll touch uh, back with you once this case does get going and once Euron is in
0: Alabama.
2: I look forward to it. Thanks so much. To
0: hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.